The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to take a one-week break from the Gospel of John. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, something that I return to again and again and again and again. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you what this text is about, really in a nutshell. Uh, When I was growing up as a kid, my grandma Castleberry, Phyllis Castleberry, was a great writer. She was just kind of a kind of a harebrained personality, you know, she would, she would forget her, her purse everywhere. She's the type of person that would, you know, show up back when it was expensive to talk on car phones and she would talk to you for an hour in the driveway while you're, on, while you're inside. She was, she was that type of person, and, but she was a really creativity type artsy person and she was a brilliant writer. And so we bought her a Dell computer a Dell computer so that way she could take her writing and she could type it out and put it all into to print and that would expedite her writing endeavors. Well, there was just one problem. She didn't know how to use it. She didn't know how to use it. So I remember one time I, I was there in Lake Jackson with her. We sat down at the computer and I said, Grandma, I'm gonna teach you how to use this computer so you can write your stories. And I said, see that button right there on the front of the computer? What you're going to do is you're going to press that button. That's the power button. And then the computer will turn on. And she said, write that down. (laughs) Write that down. Okay. Write that down. Then the computer comes on. I said, see that little little W? That's Microsoft Word. You're going to double click on that. She said, write that down. Well, needless to say, she never really learned how to use the computer. But yet, all of that power, all of, that, all of those tools were right there at her disposal, and she never really knew how to use them, never really figured it out. Well, what Romans chapter 5 is about, and what Paul is talking about is he wants the Roman Christians to know 
the blessings that they have been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are certain things that you need to know here in the mind in order for you to live the Christian life the way that you are supposed to. There are certain truths that you must imbibe, you must master in order for you to grow and develop as a Christian. And one of my concerns about the Christianity today is it's all so superficial. It's so superficial that so many Christians don't know, and I'm going to use a fancy word here, the doctrines of the Christian faith. But it's these doctrines that build the foundation of your experience. It's like knowing how to turn on that computer, knowing what to click. You got to know this stuff inside and out so that way the experience of your Christian life can be built upon it. And so many Christians just don't know the truth of Christianity, the basic things. And as Paul told the Corinthians, they're still drinking spiritual milk when they should be eating solid food. So this morning, I want you to pay attention to the truth because these things, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, what Paul says here, they are true about you, but you must know them. You must know it in your mind. So put on your thinking caps. Let's look here at Romans 5, 1 to 8. Look at that first verse, verse 1. That word, therefore, of course, when you see that, you have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Paul says, since we have been justified by faith. Notice that fancy word, justified. It's the Greek word, dikaio. And this is really important but it speaks to a legal declaration that a judge gives that you are innocent or that you are righteous. And this is really synonymous with being saved or your salvation or how you become a Christian. And notice what Paul says. He says, since we have been justified by what? Faith. Faith. It's faith in Christ that justifies. That's what saves. How many of you heard from an evangelist or a youth rally or something growing up that what you need to do to become a Christian is to invite Jesus into your heart? Have you ever heard that before? I've got news for you. That's not how you become a Christian. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that you become a Christian by inviting Jesus into your heart. Where people get that is Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open up to me, behold, I will come into him and we will dine with him and, and we will have fellowship together. That's written to Christians. That's written to a Christian church. It is true that Christ comes to dwell in the heart of the believer. That's true. But that is the result of salvation, not how one enters salvation. The way that you are saved is by repenting of your sins and trusting Christ in faith as Lord and Savior. That is justification. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, here's, here's the issue. Here's the issue. If justification is a legal standing before God in a declaration of righteousness. Is anyone righteous legitimately? Is anyone righteous? No, we are not. 
And that's what Paul has fleshed out in the previous chapters. Romans 3.10, Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The message of the Bible is not that Christ came to save good people. The message of the Bible is that we are all bad people in need of salvation. Have you ever heard that question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's the wrong question. It's only happened once and he volunteered for it. There's only one who is righteous, only one. And because of our sin, what we deserve is the judgment of God, not the love of God. We deserve damnation and the wrath of God. And that's what is taking place at the cross. That's why salvation is only in Christ alone. Romans 3.25 says, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation is an old English word. It's a, it's a doctrinal word, but it means a substitute for a punishment. God put forward his own son, the righteous one, as the sin punishment for sinners. That's what theologically was happening at the cross, is God the Father was pouring out the judgment that would take forever for you to pay in hell. He was pouring that judgment out on the Son, the wrath of God on the Son. Writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9:12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Christ poured out his blood, and the blood represents life. His life was given for your life. His death for your death. His blood for your blood. So the key, and this is the way that you become a Christian. Paul puts it very simply. Jot down this verse, Romans 4, 5. He says, to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if you call upon the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's by faith. It's by trusting Christ in faith alone for your salvation. And the moment that you do that, you are declared righteous. You are declared righteous. So it is very important in a, in a congregation this size on Thanksgiving Sunday, I know there are some here who have never called upon the Lord in faith. Never called upon the Lord in faith. So make sure that you get right with God, that you call upon. If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Come to the end of yourself and call upon him. And if you do that, what Paul flushes out here are six realities in the next eight verses that we must know, that we must master. Right next to verse one, the reality of peace. This is the first thing that we need to know, the reality of peace. The moment that you trust Christ in faith, your status changes and you now have 
peace with God. Look at verse one. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace that he is referencing is not an emotion or a feeling. It's a reality. A declaration of peace has been drawn up. You remember Grant and Lee uh, signed an armistice, an agreement that the Civil War was over. The terms of peace were laid down, but yet not everybody knew there was still fighting down in Texas. Not everybody knew that the terms of peace had been drawn up. But that's similar to what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about the euphoric feeling of peace in your heart. He's talking about the reality of peace that you have with God. And implied in this statement are two things. Once, we once hated God as our enemy. Before you come to Christ, you are not neutral towards God. Rather, you hate God. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Because of our sin, we were enemies of God. That is your natural state. Have you ever tried to evangelize someone and it just didn't seem like you were getting anywhere and there was real animosity towards the truth of the gospel? Deep down, that is our natural position. We don't love God, we hate God. And here's the other interesting thing. It's not just that we hated God as our enemy. God once hated us as his enemy. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he must reign, Christ must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he comes down at the second coming, there will be a judgment. And Christ will judge his enemies in wrath. Psalm 7:12 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Revelation 19.15, describing the second coming of our Lord, says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Have you ever heard of the flood? The flood? Noah, you know, the, the animals, two by two. I know we sing songs about it with our kids. The flood was a moment of judgment for the world, except for eight people, whole world, judged. Sodom and Gomorrah, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained brimstone from heaven on these cities. Friends, if you are not under the bow of the cross, then you are under the wrath of God, you. Sometimes I've heard it said, you know, God loves the sinner, but God hates the sin. Well, guess what? On judgment day, it's not the sin he's throwing into hell. It's sinners. So if you are not under the cross, you are under the wrath of God. God is not happy with your condition. 
but God has provided in the cross a means of peace. That's why Paul says, look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The death of Christ provides the means of reconciliation. Paul calls the gospel then in Ephesians 6.15, the gospel of peace. R.C. Sproul once said, quote, Christ is our peace, so for us, there is no more war with God, end quote. And that is why it is so important, so important, that if you have truly come to Christ in faith and you are justified, you need to know that you are truly at peace with God and nothing can change that reality. Nothing can change that reality because the terms of peace have been drawn up. God is at peace with you and you are at peace with God and it doesn't matter how you feel. It's the truth about you. You are at peace with God in Christ. But yet there's an urgency, isn't there, for those who are not at peace with God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be ye reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. The moment that you come to faith in Christ, you are no longer an enemy, but you are what? A friend. You're a friend of God. And nothing, nothing, not hell itself, can change that status. That's the first truth you need to know. Second, the moment that you come to faith in Christ, and write this next to verse two, you stand on grace. You stand on grace. You have entered into the realm of grace. Look at verse two. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Look at that word access. That word speaks to an appearance before a great king. The NASB translates it as an introduction. You think about a king's court and a ruler sitting up on his throne. Not just anybody can come into the throne room, right? You know, when I was over in London last year, I couldn't just go up to Buckingham Palace and knock on the door and say, I want to see the queen. Wouldn't happen. You have to be somebody important. You have to be part of the royal family. You have to be a, a lord. You have to be the prime minister. You have, to have, you have to know someone. You have to have this introduction into the presence of the ruler. And you remember in the Old Testament, where would God meet with his people? The tabernacle, the temple. And God would meet with his people through an intermediary. The high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, and only he, under certain ritual cleansings, could go into the presence of God and meet with God. It was a very exclusive thing. And here what Paul is saying is, is that through Christ, 
because Christ is the sacrificial lamb of God. By his blood and righteousness, we have obtained access into the holy of holies. And not only that, the high priest, as soon as he would do that, they would tie a rope around his, his leg and he would make the atoning sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would leave. He would go out. He wouldn't stay there. But look at what Paul says in verse two. We have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Did you get that? You never leave. You never leave. Through the blood and the righteousness of Christ, you never leave the presence of God. What did Jesus say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As a Christian, you stand in grace forever and ever and ever and ever. And what does that mean in terms of the implications for your relationship with God? What does that mean? It means that wherever you go to Brazil on an expedition to the, an expedition to the Arctic, Everest, wherever, wherever you go, you stand with access to God. You ever see that picture of JFK with his kids playing below the desk? You know, and all these world leaders, you know, have to wait and come, be ushered in and, 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 and be screened to have access with the president. But his children, they're right there because they have that access to their father whenever they want to. What does God say about you in Christ? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So friend, if you're in Christ, you stand in grace. You stand in what my grandpa used to call divine favor. Divine favor. Present tense. Paul says of Ephesians 3.12, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we don't need to shrink back. Think about what this means for your prayer life, that you can pray to God with confidence wherever you are, in whatever situation you're in, whatever the circumstances, you can come to God and ask him anything because you stand in grace. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So boldness in prayer is one of the applications of knowing that you stand in grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Third, and again, this is next to verse two, right, this, right for the Christian, we exalt in the second coming of our Lord. We exalt, we rejoice in the second coming of our Lord. The end of verse two says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Underline that phrase, the glory of God. Glory of God speaks about the radiance of God's attributes. Here, the glory of God is synonymous with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, we will see him in his glory. So throughout the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is sometimes simply referred to as the glory of Christ or the glory of God. Let me give you some examples. This is Mark 8, 35. He comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is Titus 2, 13. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the Christian's hope is in the coming, the second coming of our Lord. And the Bible says that when Christ comes back, sin, death, and the devil will all be destroyed forever and ever. The word hope, elpidos, doesn't speak of a chance hope. You know, oh, I hope I win the lottery, or I hope the Brewers will win the World Series, something like that. It speaks of a hopeful certainty. Some of you didn't catch that about the Brewers. It's a, hopeful, it's, it's a hope of, I know this will happen, and I've set my faith on it. And if you're a Christian, that is your ultimate hope, is the Lord's second coming. It's not in this life. It shouldn't be in this life. It shouldn't be in an inheritance. It shouldn't be in a company that you've built up. It shouldn't be in investments. It shouldn't be in the fame of your name. It shouldn't be in even something that you've built. Everything you own will be given to your kids. They're going to reluctantly put your furniture in their dining room someday. And sometimes we forget this. Yesterday, I was at a nursing home. And you see people that are close to the other side. We're all close to the other side, relatively. We don't know the moment that we will depart from this world to the next. The hope of the Christian is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
Don't you long for that day? Think about Christians battling cancer or cystic fibrosis or a a debilitating illness. You can't hope in this life. It's in Christ, his second coming, and the gifts that he will bring. That is the longing and the expectation of the Christian, Paul says. John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In verse 16 of Revelation 19, he says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our hope and our expectation. And that's what we rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's number three. Number four, next to verse three, right in your margin, exalt in suffering. Wow, what a thing to say. Exalt in suffering. He says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of of the second coming of Christ, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. How counterculture is that statement? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. The word suffering is the Greek word thalipsis. You could translate it tribulations. Remember amazing grace through many tribulations, toils, snares. The Christian life is filled with unexpected difficulty. It is. This world is still a fallen world. We still deal with sin. We, we still deal with death. We still deal with all sorts of issues that Satan puts in our path. But the important thing to know as a Christian is that God is sovereign over them. And that's why Paul can say this. He's not just, this isn't some stoic philosophy where he's just saying, you know, bring on the suffering. He's not saying that. He's saying, I know that God is sovereign over the suffering, over the tribulations that I face. And therefore, because I know God is sovereign, I know, Romans 8, 28, Paul says, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that God is using the suffering and the tribulation and the trials in my life for a specific purpose. What's that purpose? Well, we're given insight into the mind of God here and how he uses tribulations. Look what he says. He says, I know that the thalipsis, the tribulations, produces endurance. That word endurance means the capacity to bear up in the face of difficulty. It means that you can keep going, that you can keep being patient in the midst of the pain. I was listening to a podcast about this army ranger and the interviewer was asking him about why he became an army ranger. He was a college dropout and and he said, well, the reason why I became an army ranger is because I realized that I had a special talent. He said, oh, what's that? He said, I had the capacity to endure pain beyond what a normal person could. 
So I thought maybe that could be something for me. Well, interestingly, I think that is also true of the Christian, that God gives the Christian, you know, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, supernatural strength to endure suffering, to wait through suffering and tribulation. And notice what he says in verse four. This endurance produces character. This endurance produces character. That word character speaks to someone who has been battle-tested. Battle-tested. Somebody who has gone through a difficulty and come out the other side. They have been tested. Paul uses the word to describe Timothy in Philippians 2.22, describing his proven character as he's gone through different tests and trials. Your character, God develops through the tribulation, through the difficulties you face. So the trial that you're going through is for a specific purpose. It's so that God can build Christ-likeness in you, so that God can build your character. And then he says that character produces hope. And it produces hope in this way. You are able to see when you've gone through a number of trials, you are able to look back in the history of your life and see how God has carried you through every single one of them. And when you're around somebody who's gone through trials and their character has been tested, it gives you a little bit of hope when you're around them, doesn't it? I remember when I was about to get on the, the boat, the Navy boat, we were going on, a, on this big cruise, they made us do this training. And the training was how to get out of a helicopter when it flies off the boat into the ocean. Fun training, right? You hope that never happens. That's a, that is a bad day. And uh, so what they would do is they would take us to this tank and they would strap us into a, a, a fake helicopter and they, the tank would go underneath the water, it would turn upside down and you would have to unbuckle and swim out of, a, of, of this dark capsule uh, underwater and up to the surface. And we would do this over and over again to train how to get out of a helicopter uh, that's in the water. Well, we had to watch this movie and they, they made everybody who would ride in a helicopter in the entire Marine Corps watch this movie. And the movie was narrated by this Marine who had been involved in three helicopter crashes in the ocean. Three helicopter crashes in the ocean. He talks about his experience, you know, and you know, several, several of these crashes, like 10 Marines you know, had been killed. And so we're, we're just riveted listening to this guy, three helicopter crashes. So a month later, we go, get on the boat. We're walking around the boat. We're walking through one of the passageways. And guess who walks by us on the boat? The guy from the movie. The three helicopter crash guy. And we all said, you know what? If we take off from the boat over to the Philippines in a helicopter, we want that guy to be with us. Why? Because his character has been tested. He's proven it. There's hope there. And in the Christian life, as you endure through suffering and trials. That's what you become. 
you become someone, not that your hope and faith is in yourself, but your hope and faith is in that God carries you through again and again and again and again. Listen to what the psalmist says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You see, part of the Christian life is learning to say that with confidence. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? It always comes from the Lord. He's always there. He always comes again, 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 again. I mean, can you imagine talking with Moses? You know, Moses, tell us about your experience. You know, I went into the courts of Pharaoh. They didn't believe me. Then I threw down my staff. Then I called out and I prayed and the, and the Nile turned to blood. Then they still wouldn't let the people go. Then God told us to, to celebrate the Passover. We killed the Passover lambs and the death angel came. And God provided a way of escape and they gave us the gold on the way out. But then we walked in the desert and we came to the Red Sea. We were hemmed in and Pharaoh's army approached. Well, then what'd you do? I prayed. I didn't know what to do. God told me to hold up my staff. The water parts. And then we walked through. So then it was easy going, right? It was all... Rose petals and buttercups, right? No. Then we walked into the desert. We didn't have food. People started to complain. What'd you do? I prayed. And God sent food from the sky. We didn't have water. What'd you do? God told me to throw my staff in this salty marsh and the water turned fresh. Again, again, Again and again, God is faithful. Faithful. So your suffering, your suffering, your trial is meant to get you to the point where you know God's salvation and see him bring you through on the other side. And that's how Christian character is built again and again and again. All right, fifth. Next to verse five, write the experience of the love of God. The experience of the love of God. Everything to this point is something I've told you that you need to know. And if you don't know it, your Christianity will be short-circuited. This is something that you need to experience. This is really the experience of the Christian. Do you remember when I told you at the very beginning that you don't 
come to faith. You don't become a Christian by asking Christ into your heart. You become a Christian by trusting Christ in faith. But in trusting Christ in faith, the result of that is that through the person of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself comes and takes residence in your heart. Look at verse five. He says, hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift to every single new covenant Christian. That's 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of Christ. And do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? This is John 16, 7, in the upper room. We're going to look at this in a couple months. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he will take up residence in your soul. Imagine, really, the impact and the mind-blowing reality of that statement. If you're a disciple and you've been with the Lord for three years, you've walked with the Lord for three years, you've watched the Lord's miracles, you've heard his teaching for three years, how marvelous that must have been. Incredible, right? I mean, I would give anything to have heard the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus says it's actually better for you if I go and I send the Holy Spirit to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's truly better? That it's better for us right now to have the Holy Spirit than to have been personally there during the ministry of Christ? Here's the reality. The apostles thought it was better. Because when they were with Christ, they saw him, they heard his teaching, they experienced the miracles. But sometimes when they were away from him or were far away from him or he was off talking to, to James and John and Peter, they, they felt distant from him. They felt distant from him. Have you ever been like that where you, maybe you're at odds with a family member and you're at the same? Maybe this was Thanksgiving for you. You're at the same table, and you're, you're all eating together, but you feel distant from that family member. But you're right there with them. How can that be? Well, the apostles sometimes felt the same thing, oftentimes because of their disobedience. But Christ says that in the new covenant, I send the Holy Spirit to you, my spirit, so that now, wherever you go, I am with you in a supernatural way, in a mystical way. He says in John 14, 18, marvelous words, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The apostle John at the end of his life said this, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And we are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. So that your joy may be complete. So what the Holy Spirit does is he brings the presence of Christ into your life. And this is sacred ground, what we're talking about. This isn't just ethereal head knowledge here. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And so the important thing, you know, the the Holy Spirit is God himself. So he's sovereign over how he communicates this love in our hearts. We can't just derive a formula and say, Holy Spirit, pour out this love into my heart right now so that I can feel it. You can't do that. But what you can do is what Jesus says in John 15 is you can abide in Christ through your obedience. You put yourself into Christ. You obey Christ. You obey his word. You walk with him. And at special moments, the Holy Spirit brings truth to bear in your heart. And it's not just truth, but it's truth on fire. Have you felt it? Where you're as Wesley said, your heart grows strangely warm. And the more that you strive to commune with God, the more the Holy Spirit will do that work in your heart where you will know, not just theoretically, but know the love of Christ for you. That's five, the experiential knowledge of the love of God. And six, and this is, you can write next to verses six to eight, is the knowledge of the love of God. This is the objective knowledge of the love of God. This is the truth of the love of God for you. This isn't a feeling. The feeling is verse five. This is the objective reality that is true of you. This is what you must know about yourself. Once I was talking to a Christian, he's a pastor now, and he came to me and he said, Grant, how do I really, really, really know that God loves me? How do I know? How, how can we be certain of his love? And I just turned to these verses. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word weak, asthenes, means helpless helpless. Have you ever had a a sports injury where you maybe tore an ACL or broke a leg? I remember one time I dislocated a kneecap and I was just helpless. You know, you just lay on the couch. You can't get up. You know, you elevate your rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation, right? And, And you're just, I can't walk. I need surgery, whatever. You're helpless. And in a spiritual sense, that's what Paul is saying about our predicament. We're helpless, spiritually speaking. He says, but at the right time, at the right season, at the right place in history, Christ died for the ungodly. That word ungodly means irreverent, impious, somebody who disregards God. I've told this story before, but a few months ago, I was at the gym lifting weights. I was on the squat racks. There were these boys behind me on the bench press. And every time they would, this, they would try to push the weight up, 
they would yell Christ's name in vain every time. And then they would throw the weights, whatever. And I'm lifting weights. I'm trying to ignore them. But it happens three, four, five times. And finally I said, Lord, if you want me to say something, it will happen again. You know, that's kind of, you just kind of throw out that fleece, right? You know? And, uh, well, he wanted me to say something because it happened again. And I walked over there and I said, one, you don't throw the weights. But two, you don't take Christ's name in vain. He's Lord. And one day you will stand at his feet. They were shocked. <laughs> I, I took a class on how to evangelize friends and influence people, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I started to wonder if my Y membership would be revoked, but it was worth it. Um, but in a real sense, that's us. I know, I know it's easy now to point the finger at them, but Christ died for the ungodly, the irreverent, those who take his character in vain. That word for, it's a loaded word. It means on behalf of, in the place of. Christ died in the place of the ungodly. Look at the explanation in verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Here he's talking about somebody who is self-righteous. You know these people, these more pharisaical people, these people that post themselves up as just morally good. Most of the time, those people are not well-liked. He says, one will scarcely die for that type of person. And then he, he says, but there are, you know, there, there are some people, they're so endearing, they, they, they're likable. He says, and this is a relative term in comparison to other people. He says, for a good person, one would dare even to die. So you probably somewhere have a short list. You know, okay, you know, my parents, my spouse, my kids, if they've been obedient, you know, uh, whoever. People are on that list. Okay. Th those are people that I would be willing to die for, maybe, in the right situation. But, he says, verse 8, God shows, NIV used to translate it, translate it, demonstrate. God demonstrates his love for us. Look at this. In that while we were still sinners, that word means a lawbreaker. While we were breaking whose law? God's law. While we were breaking God's law, when we were in rebellion against him, Christ died, and there's the same word, for us, who paired. Christ died on our behalf. So the cross is not about how great you are. The cross is about how great God's love is. Sometimes I hear Christians say the, the cross shows us our worth. No, no, no. The cross shows you God's love. Because what the, the, the cross, Paul says, is while you were a sinner, while you were ungodly, while you were weak, Christ died for you. I once heard Joe Stoll. Do you all remember Joe Stoll? He was the president of Moody Bible College maybe 20 years ago. I once, him, once heard him say about this verse. He said, if you've ever gone to a lemon lot, you ever go to a lemon lot? They used to have them outside the Marine Corps bases. A lemon lot is the used car 
lot where, you know, they, they pour sand in the radiator, they get the car up just so it'll drive off the lot. And then they, you know, they hit the Marine up for a 30, 30% interest rate, you know, but the lemon lot is where they sell the no good cars. And Stoll said this, he says, it's not just that God buys you. It's that he buys you as a lemon. That's you. And moreover, it's not just that he buys lemons. It's that he pays full price. The death of his son. So if you're ever questioning God's love, does God truly love me? He's already showed it. He paid full price for you so that you could be reconciled to him and you could become his child. Do you see what I said about at the beginning, how these truths change everything? If you know these truths, your assurance is built up. You have the ammunition now to live the Christian life. You know that you stand in grace. You know that you have peace with God. You know that your suffering is producing character for a purpose and that character, hope. You know that you have this experience of the love of God everywhere you go. And you know that God's love outside of you is this objective reality that nothing can change. And God has already demonstrated his love. And that changes everything. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would know these truths and that the truth would set us free and that we would ground our lives in these doctrines and these great truths of Romans chapter eight and that we would have assurance of salvation knowing that all who trust Christ in faith have this peace with God, that all who trust Christ in faith stand in the realm of grace, that all who trust Christ in faith know that God is working their trials for their ultimate good, that we can hope in the second coming of our Lord, that we have the love of Christ poured out in our hearts, and that we can look to the cross to see the demonstration of God's love for us. We love you, Lord, for these truths. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.